Mori ora kite fare no mai haere mai. Welcome to something that may shock and discredit you with Daniel Lavery. My name is Claire Maybe. I'm the founder of Verb Wellington and the books editor at The Spinoff. And I'm here with Daniel, who is the co-founder of now retired but still beloved feminist website The Toast. Between 2016 and 2021, Daniel was Dear Prudence, Slate's advice columnist. He writes the newsletter, The Chatner, has recently launched with Joe Livingstone a good old-fashioned website called stockgat.net, and as well as writing the internet, Daniel is a New York Times best-selling writer of books, texts from Jane Eyre and other conversations with your favorite literary characters, The Merry Spinster, Tales of Everyday Horror, Dear Prudence, and the memoir-esque Something That May Shock and Discredit You, of which Kirkus Reviews said, The writing is vulnerable but confident, specific but never narrow and literal. The author is refreshingly unafraid of his own uncertainty, but he's always definitive where it counts. You'll laugh, you'll cry, often both at once. Everyone should read this extraordinary book. Please give Daniel a round of applause. So we're going to have a chat about this book, and then um, there will be time for questions at the end. So something that may shock and discredit you is made up of chapters and interludes. And in the very first interlude, which is called Chapter Titles from the on-the-nose, po-faced, transmasculine memoir I'm trying not to write, you say, the first step in writing a book is not writing the wrong book. The fight against writing Son of a Preacher Man, Becoming Daniel Mallory Ortberg must be renewed every day. What was important for you to get right about this book? I mean, as, as I said, um, trying not to do the dusty Springfield line, Son of a Preacher Man, it was just right there every day. Like, you could call the book that. People would know that song, and you could get it done. Um, but it also felt really important to me not to write something that felt uh, sort of like striking a little gong at the end of a neat little pun. Um, it, it felt very important to me to try to think through uh, not what is the book that would feel neatest or easiest to wrap up, uh, or one that I think would make the most sense, so much as something that feels more um, representative of the series of sort of shocks and jostles that my own relationship had been towards both transition and pastiche, which I think is the genre that I work in the most. Yeah, and that um, note about uncertainty in that Kirkus review, like for me reading the book, there's this wonderful kind of openness and questioning, and I wondered if kind of tentativeness feels fear as a descriptor for you? Is that something that you consciously do? I think so. I think oftentimes the biggest decisions that I've made in my life have been sort of um, uh, preceded by a sort of, well, who's to say? This might be a terrible idea, but I think I'm going to do it, so let's find out. Um, and, and that sort of balance between, uh, you know, sometimes I can get really stuck in a loop of like letting I dare not wait upon I dare, and sometimes my problem is impulsivity, and sometimes it's a, a mixture of the two. And so trying to uh, thread a path between overthinking, um, feeling stuck in rumination, versus making decisions, and then afterwards trying to come up with an explanation or a series of motivations that made sense. I, I, I tend to incorporate all of those into my chaotic personal life. <laughs> We're going to do some readings in this session so you can get a sense of um, that questioning and that, that opening up. Um, in the first chapter, which is titled, the titles in this book are phenomenal. The title is, when you were younger and you got home early and you were the first one home and no one else was out on the street, did you ever worry that the rapture had happened without you? I did. You can really <laughs> tell too with these chapter titles, like, oh, somebody grew up listening to a lot of my chemical romance. <laughs> so in this, this chapter, you say, one of the many advantages of a religious childhood is the variety of metaphors made available to describe untranslatable inner experiences. And throughout the book, you, um, you reference the Bible a lot, in particular, the struggle with Jacob and God. And um, you really treat it like a text. And I wondered if you could talk about um, that religious imagination kind of underpinning your writing and the way you tackled it for this book. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, both my parents were ministers. I come from a long line of professional Christians. 
Um, and <laughs> I, I think often when you are writing about uh, a religious childhood, and you yourself are no longer a religious person, I, I think that goes back to the fear of the po-faced. It can be really easy to just sort of sit in your 30s and take little pot shots at your childhood, um, and in, in so doing, feel like you're making a lie out of it. Like, there were lots of things about it that were complicated, but neither is it true that I just had a, a resentment towards having been forced to grow up religious. There's a lot of value in it. Um, there's a lot of good that came out of it. And, and one of the things that I think is really useful is it, it just gives you a, a number of stories to kind of um, check your own life against if you want to. Um, and, and so that was something that I, I found quite valuable and didn't want to just say, gosh, poor me, can you imagine I grew up religious? That was really tough. Um, which, again, just like the easy gesture or bid for sympathy, I think because so often in my own life, I often live as if there's an office-style documentary crew following me around, <laughs> and I can just sort of play to the camera and say, like, can you believe my suffering? Um, which has been, as you might imagine, not at all helpful for my romantic life, um, doing that sort of cheat to an invisible camera that is not there. Um, as if at the end of my life, someone's going to come and say, well, we scored up all the times you were right and misunderstood, and we'd like to give you this award. Um, which is a very, I think, roundabout way of, of saying, I wanted to be able to talk about sort of uh, unusual or weird experiences as a religious child, like being eight and thinking, oh, I don't see anyone else on the cul-de-sac right now. Possibly the rapture has just happened. But without creating this idea that then my childhood must have been spent in a constant state of panic and thinking every day literally the rapture had happened. Because I also, I think even at eight, had kind of a sense of, well, this doesn't seem very plausible. And so, and I think, I don't think I was unusual in that. I think most eight-year-olds have about that level of sophistication. There's something compelling about this idea that someday the world will change in a way that leaves me behind. That seems, that seems plausible. But then also, where's everyone going to go? What's going to happen to their pets? That, you know, that sort of back and forth between the sort of like the skeptical, the romantic, the idealist. Um, and religion provides a really interesting playground for a lot of those fears and anxieties. Yeah, and you really write about that struggle between kind of kind of wanting it to happen and then not wanting it to happen. And I guess that's why I wanted to ask about Jacob. So, so Jacob is a character um, who kind of recurs throughout the book. Um, and I wondered if you could just tell us maybe briefly the story in case people out there are not familiar and, and why, why Jacob? Yeah, just a quick run through the book yeah. of Genesis. <laughs> um, you know, if you're familiar with Jacob, it's likely uh, through his relationship with his brother Esau. Jacob is the younger in a sort of series of stories of younger brothers unexpectedly uh, inheriting throughout the book of Genesis. He convinces his older brother Esau, whom his father favors, to give him his birthright because Esau's been out hunting and Jacob's been cooking and he has some food. And Esau's just like, I see lunch. I don't know what an inheritance is. This is I'll take lunch. Um, so, so that's his sort of like origin story, but then there's also episodes throughout his life about marrying um, Rachel and Leah. Uh, he's the one who sees the ladder going up to heaven. He has the vision that's often referred to as Jacob's ladder. Um, he also, uh, in around that same episode, has an experience where he wrestles with a, a figure that's not made quite clear, possibly a representative of God, possibly a manifestation of God, possibly an angel. They wrestle, and it really is a sort of strange episode because it just—it's—he's crossing a river, he's he's getting ready to camp down with his family, and then like, no no prelude, no preamble. Suddenly he's wrestling this like glowing stranger, and he sort of figured out. And it's really—it's so on the nose. They're wrestling. The angel won't explain why. He says, "Tell me your name." He says, "Tell me your name." And then he touches on the, him on the hip so that he walks differently for the rest of his life and gets a brand new name. It's very like oh, can I use this for my transition memoir? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So you make it, like, you do make it feel relevant. Like, you make the Bible feel like a relevant thing for us to think about. And is that, I guess, is that what you... You say that like it's a surprise. It's, <laughs> it's, it, there's, there's a reason it's stuck around for a pretty long time. Like, there are very rich texts. I, I, sorry, I don't mean to uh, undercut your point. I just, I don't want it to make it sound like, yeah, I did that. A lot of people had given up on the Bible, and then I came by and said, some of these stories are pretty interesting. Is it hard for you to make the Bible funny, though? Like, was there ever a point where you felt tentative about doing that, given your... 
I don't think so. I think if anything, the thing that I worry about is the sort of cheap humor um, that, like, I would also not want to bring to the epic of Gilgamesh. Like, it's not surprising or painful to me that the people who wrote these stories or, or um, the people who passed them down don't share my values. Mm -hmm. And so I, I never wanted to do the kind of, like, can you believe people used to think something that we don't think now? Um, or to try to reduce a complicated story into, and they're just like us. Um, and so I think that was my biggest fear, would that it would seem like um, cheap pot shots, uh, or isn't it great that we're not so simple now? Um, and I think that was my primary fear. Um, and so I, I instead really hoped to communicate. You know, I find the like values and stories that people wanted to tell each other through these texts fascinating and interesting. I don't have to share all those values, um, but then I don't need to feel anxious about being mistaken for the same thing, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, completely makes sense. And I think that kind of you do give it a lot of weight, but it, it's woven in as a text among many other texts in the book, which makes it also extra interesting. Um, I wonder if we can go to a reading now so we can get into the book. And this is a reading from chapter six, the stages of not going on tea. And that's just a fun little abbreviation, it's short for testosterone. Um, I don't know how many of you are transsexuals. I hope some. <laughs> Fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, let's see, you wanted me to do, that's right. Uh, so this is the, the stages of not going on tea, and, and this was something we were gesturing towards earlier, I think. There's, uh, there's a real difference between thinking about gender and getting a sex change. Not that they can't inform one another, but like one involves making some pretty specific phone calls. Um, <laughs> and, and so a, a big part of what I was sort of working through in the, in the lead up to this book, I mean, spoiler alert, I took it. I didn't always... <laughs> I didn't always have this beard or this first name. Um, but so there's a real sense of like, oh, should I do it? Should I not? Should I wait another 30 years and see if I'm any happier? Um, should I like hope someone spills them on the street and then like it would go to waste and then I would have to take it? Um, so that's the sort of like um, uh, experience that this is uh, uh, addressing. And if you haven't ever taken uh, hormone replacement therapy, feel free to replace it with some other big life change. Oh, I don't want to go on tea. That's not what this is. I can see where you got the idea, I suppose, but I'm afraid hormones simply aren't for me. I don't even want the ones I have. <laughs> I'll never go on testosterone, but it's really wonderful for you. You look great. You look better than anything I've ever seen, honestly. If I were stuck in a room for the rest of my life and I could only look at one thing for some reason, it would be you. I hope that's not weird to say. But that's really not the same thing. I just want you to go on hormones and for me to be able to watch you do it. And if you ever wanted to share the occasional update, like just a few daily or hourly updates on how you're feeling, maybe a daily journal about what tea is doing for you, what effects you're noticing, that sort of thing, that I could read or watch or follow along from the comfort of my home where I'm not on hormones, that would be ideal. But that's it for me. I'm not even sure I want hormones. I'm pretty sure I don't want them because I think about going on hormones all the time. And then those thoughts always end on some variation of, I can't, not ever. And if I really wanted to try hormones, obviously I wouldn't keep thinking about how I can't try them. I think about them all the time and I constantly have to stop myself, so obviously I don't really want them. You know how when you're profoundly curious and sick with longing about something, and it usually passes really quickly? It's like an idle fixation, brought on by boredom, easily confused with legitimate desire? Don't worry, a lot of people confuse the two. And it doesn't help seeing all these attractively powerful trans people getting into their stretch limousines, going on the news to promote hormone therapy as a universal panacea for solving all your problems. It happens all the time, and I'm so sick of it. I certainly don't need hormones. Look, I've got all these coping strategies instead. Look how well they're working. If someone were to drop a little bit of leftover testosterone on the ground and I couldn't find the original owner and there weren't any real trans people around and it was about to go bad, sure, I would probably <laughs> take it in the interest of preventing waste. That's just sensible. Stands to reason. And if for some reason I were forced to take testosterone, I don't know why someone would force me, but it could happen. 
I would of course make the best of a bad situation and comply with good cheer. There's no point in complaining when someone comes to your house and forces you to take testosterone against your will. I would be remarkably sanguine about the whole thing. I would be a model of radical acceptance. <laughs> These things do happen sometimes for a number of reasons. One reads about it. Yes, I'm quite prepared to be forced to take hormones if it ever comes to that, but I certainly wouldn't go out of my way for it. Oh my God, hormones would ruin my life. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but they would ruin my life dramatically. Obviously, they are great for other people. I think everyone should get the chance to try going on hormones except for me. I'm the only person who should never take hormones. God, can you imagine me on hormones? I imagine it all the time and I know it would be terrible. No, I've given it a lot of thought, and I know that testosterone therapy would destroy all my personal relationships, ruin my sex life, devastate my plans for the future, render me permanently unhappy, and otherwise set off a series of unmitigated disasters that I would regret for the rest of my life, but you look great. I'm perfectly contented as I am, not needing hormones, certainly not wanting them, prepared to take them cheerfully under duress, planning ahead for that duress, and secure in the knowledge that they would ruin my life, and I've never wanted them for even a moment. Thank you so much. The book is so um, generous in, in lots of ways, and I wondered if you wrote we get a sense of you like working this out and going through this process of, of transition. And I wondered if you wrote the book alongside that or if you were looking back. I, I think it's a mix of the two. I think about half of the book was written sort of in real time and then another half was written uh, upon some more considered reflection. And I think the book demonstrates that. I think there are feelings throughout the book of um, like periodicity uh, and a sense of moving back and forth through time. Uh, as well as a real sense of working my way through my own uh, canon. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of shifting uh, throughout the book, which again, I think was part of the process for me. Uh, and mm. so that, that felt useful to get to incorporate. And does the writing help you work out your thoughts or do you kind of enter into it knowing, knowing what is gonna come out? Um, I think they were fairly separate. I think, you know, there was another kind of much more personal, straightforward diary type writing I was doing when I was trying to think about, you know, what steps do I want to take for the rest of my life? So it, it wasn't as if I, like, sold the idea for the book still up in the air, like, who knows, I might end up a lady at the end of all this. Um, so that does feel distinct. Like, there was the um, sort of critical writing that I wanted to do about that process that did involve looking at some of the personal writing I generated throughout it, but they were pretty distinct, I think. So, in the nature of this book, we're going to do we're going to do a turn to Captain James T. Kirk. Sure. In chapter eleven, the the title is Captain James T. Kirk is a beautiful lesbian, and I'm not sure exactly how to explain that. And on page 128, you say, a while back, I was at a conference in Tennessee with a bunch of medievalists trying to explain something about boyishness and what it feels like to want to resist it and to drown in it at the same time. We were talking about Apollo and Hyacinthus. I am often almost always trying to talk about Apollo and Hyacinthus. And I was trying to figure out exactly why it felt so important to me once again to the connection between the death of Hyacinthus and ultimate Frisbee. And I have many questions <laughs> about this passage. First of all, can we talk about the medieval period and what is interesting and fascinating about that and what was happening at Tennessee? Absolutely. I, um, I feel very embarrassed now that I can't remember the name of the conference, but I know there was a conference of medievalists in Tennessee, uh, and one year they invited me to come by uh, as an enthusiastic amateur who occasionally talks about the like, Roman de Silence. Um, and I had a very nice time, and they were very friendly. That's all I can really say about it, because I, I don't remember much more. I want to say it was Sewanee. That feels right. It was the Sewanee Medieval Conference. Wow. And so what is it about, like, why were you there? What is it? Because you're often, through the book, looking at past. You're looking at the past texts, you know, like grand classical things. And what, what is it about looking back at those? Mm -hmm. I think some of that comes from a sense of having sort of missed out on um, the educational experience I might have wanted to have. Uh, my college experience was uh, at an evangelical Christian college in suburban Los Angeles, which I don't recommend. Um, 
and, <laughs> and didn't involve a great deal of learning. So I think one of the things that I wanted to do in my work afterwards was to try to go back and read or, or um, reread things that felt uh, meaningful or useful to my education. Um, and I think medievalists are, gosh, I mean, not that they're not beloved by many, but it's not often that somebody outside of the like medieval studies world is like, oh, I really want to talk about the Pearl Poet today. So they're often pretty excited when they're like, oh, you, 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 you're interested in this, come, come hang out with us. So um, I think they had just invited me to come along and sort of like, see, if you don't become a professor, you could be like this weird person who sometimes blogs about Gowan. <laughs> and Gowan, of course, is also featured in the book. And so what about Apollo and Hyacinthus? Can you tell us about that and when? Because it is quite significant in the book as well. Yeah, so we're obviously leaving the medieval period now. Yeah, we're going back, um, backwards. And you know, again, like, it, it can feel really cheesy or cheap to say, like, oh, that old thing in the past is just like this thing now, and just like a one-to-one -one equivalency, and just like, you know, uh, and, and I hope that's not the sort of joke that gets made on the page, but, you know, uh, Hyacinthus was one of Apollo's lovers, and Zephyr, the, the west wind, I think, got jealous and blew a discus out of Apollo's hand, uh, killing Hyacinthus, which is just also like, it, it does genuinely feel like you accidentally kill your boyfriend playing ultimate frisbee, and what do you do? Um, and, and that sort of, like, combination of, like, uh, you know, high tragedy and also just pure goofiness, like, if you and your boyfriend both joined the team of jackass and then jumped off the same water tower and one of you didn't make it, and then someone said, I will write a beautiful play about this. Um, you know, there's a lot of, like, bathos in that, and, and so that felt really um, useful to work into uh, the book. I think one of the threads that kind of comes up in the book a lot is, like, near-death experiences or near-death misses, I think especially because often language around transition um, can, can sometimes involve language of like death or rebirth or how do we want to talk about this? Has something died? Has something not died? Do we have to bring up butterflies? Yeah, we're fucking talking about butterflies. Okay, butterflies. <laughs> um, uh, and so uh, trying to come at it from a number of different angles. Mm. Where did this kind of hunger for looking at text in this way come from? Like, do you remember, is this something that you had as a child, or was there a moment where you really became aware of this like world of literature that you could you could find? I think that's a really useful question. If I were to guess, I would say I think it's one that I've had a long time. I certainly remember um, feeling an interest in reading back into books, into texts at a pretty early age. And I, I know I mentioned this earlier, but pastiche has always been a, a big thing for me. Um, if I love something, I pastiche it, um, and I try to turn it into like a scrapbook as quickly as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is something that has been a part of my uh, development as a writer pretty early on and has stuck with me fairly consistently. Mm. When did you feel like you were a writer? When did you know? I, I think fairly early on, again, and then the shift between I'm a writer in the sense of I hope to be one versus I'm a writer in the sense that that's how, what I do most of the day, um, probably sometime around 2012. Mm. Uh, I think when I quit my last day job, which was I worked at Yelp for three weeks, <laughs> and then I, I quit during one of my onboarding sessions. Amazing. Do you remember the first thing you wrote that you published? No. Like, do you remember? No. No. I'm sorry. There's a lot. That's what I find. No idea. Well, I reckon we should go to the second reading, which is to Anne of Green Gables. So we're going from the medieval period to the classics to Anne of Green Gables. And this is Interlude 22. It's the final one in the book. And it's called The Matriarchs of Avonlea Begrudgingly Accept Your Transition. And we're going to share the parts of Marilla and Rachel Lind. Does that mean I'm doing Marilla as well as myself? So, say that again. I'm having, actually, is there a possibility of turning the fold back up on stage a little? Just so I can hear Daniel really. I also really hope there's at least like some familiarity with Anne of Green Gables in here before we go into this, like, really. Should we give the potted history? So yeah, I, I'm not going to make everyone do a show of hands, but, you know, there's a plucky red-headed orphan who gets taken in by a bunch of, you know, suspicious elderly Canadians 
And if you don't think their hearts are eventually softened by her pluckiness, <laughs> you came into the wrong orphan story. <laughs> they are, they are softened and she is headstrong, but damn it, they love her. Um, and what this book presupposes is, <laughs> what if she transitioned? Um, <laughs> so we have Rachel Lind, uh, and there's, there's character notes here, as efficient and sure-minded as God. There's Marilla Cuthbert, formidable, earthy, whimsome, and the author. Um, all right. I've decided against an accent because I, I can't pull it off. I'm gonna do Rachel Lind, New Zealand Rachel Lind. Great. Okay. Mind that I was against taking the boy in from the start, Orphans, especially red-headed ones, are always exactly the kind who do end up transitioning, and the only thing I can think of that's worse than a red-headed girl is a red-headed boy. <laughs> if it helps, I think I'm going bald early. It doesn't, of course. Well, instead of being hopeless in the kitchen, maybe he can go be hopeless in the fields for a bit until we can figure out just exactly what part of Green Gables he's capable of being something other than hopeless in. And then now I'm, now I'm Marilla Cuthbert. <laughs> I don't mind saying that I think he's turned into a real fine boy. And I don't mind saying that I'm proud of him either. Does raise some pretty tricky questions about the Blythe boy and the Barry girl, doesn't it though? Does it? Yeah, does it? Now I, am I Rachel Lynn? Oh, this, I just you, switched. And you've planned this out badly. Sorry. <laughs> I, I can see I've stepped into a real nest of it today. Didn't know male wasps carried stingers too. Well, this is Marilla again, as if nothing had happened. I can't say I saw it coming, but then many a good turn has come from a surprise. Lord knows I enjoy a surprise myself. But if anyone was going to end up that way, I would have put good money on it being. He'd been worried some about how Matthew would take it for fear that there'd be a distance between them. As if Matthew wouldn't find a way to spoil him regardless. I thought it was nonsense too. And I hear a number of, number of Redmond students are doing it now, so he'll have, I expect, company in the spring. Not to say it's faddish exactly, but then who wants to be an iconoclast? Fat or no fat, once he puts his mind to something, it usually carries the day. Lord, yes. Whatever else might change, that red hair is mighty determined, can see it coming from a mile away. I mean, can you imagine, you grew up with Anne of Green Gables your whole life, and you think, all right, at least my hair is gonna fade to a nice dark auburn. And then you decide you're gonna be a fucking guy instead. And you think, now I have to be a red-headed man? I have no guideposts for this. No one ever talked to me about how I could do this. And I do think I'm going bald a little early. <laughs> which doesn't help at all. So, can you tell us like why, is, do you have a long history with Anne? Is I mean, she someone you beloved, was she beloved for you? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the, the 1980s Canadian adaptation, the, the good one that's like 12 yeah. hours. It's so long. Um, <laughs> was, I, like, I associate that strongly with like, it being on like, some weekend as a kid and like, you watch it um, over and over again. And the book as well was a real touchstone. And again, just that sort of like, uh, early 20th century uh, relationship to like, pluckiness and winsomeness and girlhood and like, acceptable tomboyishness mm -hmm. that felt like, just like, really interesting the way it routed through like, North American uh, evangelicalism. And so that was just a, a really familiar story for me to kind of visit and revisit. And especially too, because like the fashion and the adaptation is like everyone's in like little mini vests, like it's 2007 and they're at a My Chemical Romance concert with newsboy caps. Yeah. So again, it's, it's like really just like, if you didn't want a transmasculine child, you should have like cut Anne of Green Gables and Eponine off at the pass, but. <laughs> um, where do you think your comedy came from? Um, I, I think a number of different places. Uh, some of it uh, came from like early uh, brushes with Robert Benchley was a really influential author for me. Um, Woodhouse as well. Um, and just a sense of, it was such an interesting way to try to connect with people or to try to get a reaction or to try to um, uh, play with a situation. And so uh, it was just something that I felt really drawn to pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And your, your particular style of writing, like it has, um, it has a real tone to it that feels familiar and it feels kind of comforting as a reader that it feels like it's drawing from a t tradition that we know quite well. And I wondered, like, early in the book, you quote Pil The Pilgrim's Progress as like quite a foundational story for you. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this tone feels really familiar in your work. And I wondered if it's fair to say that 
that kind of style has influenced your writing. Uh, hugely so, yeah. You know, and I remember too, at one point in North America for about a hundred years, uh, there were about two books that every household had. One was the Bible and the other was the Pilgrim's Progress. So just like in terms of not only being a bestseller for about a century, within this one particular context, obviously it's older than North America, um, but then also the sense of how that would shape multiple generations of people where like those would be the two texts that you grew up with. Um, whereas I grew up with the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress both being incredibly influential touchstones, but they were both one among many. Like I had access to much, much more. Mm -hmm. So sort of an interesting sense of I often like connected with authors who grew up with those two books, but then also a, a, a much wider frame of reference. But I also, I think, learned a lot from the value of going really deep with uh, one or two frames of reference. Um, so some of that, again, comes from like a evangelical tradition that values like study and learning. Um, and some of it just depends on the weird things you connect on. Mm. Can we go to our, our third reading, which is from chapter 16, Pirates at the Funeral. It feels like someone died, but someone actually didn't. Yeah, so this is a chapter that's partly about Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, who you may remember have that sort of famous scene where everyone in town thinks that they're dead, um, but they're not, and they sort of sneak into the back of their own funeral, and they're hiding up in the rafters, and then they get discovered. And um, again, it felt like a sort of useful visual in the context of, well, when you talk about transition, you know, do people talk about death? And if so, is it sort of like being at your own funeral? Is that useful? Um, and so... Uh, there's also some references in here to Corinthians, which whatever else you want to say about Paul, and you can say plenty. Um, the man could write a letter. <laughs> I sometimes think of the phrase dead naming as a capitulation to the sometimes fatal language other people use about our transitions and attempt to reroute the language of death if we can't clear it away entirely. It is, I suppose, a useful enough shorthand for this name is not part of the project of life. Death and the threat of death must be met somehow, and it may be that we cannot invent a new vocabulary immediately. But whenever I hear someone refer to death as transition or transition as death, I think of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians on the subject of the resurrection. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here there are persons with multiple bodies that give way to one another, sometimes subject to corruption and destruction, sometimes ascending and taking on new power, new structure, new capabilities, sometimes clothed and sometimes naked, sometimes longing to be more naked than they already are, sometimes clothed and longing for further clothing, capable of change and regeneration that necessarily involve death but do not end with it. Here death is a creative power in service to the greater force, the greater reality of life. Here life swallows up death and everyone is invited to look at it to see the evidence of the persistence of life with their own new eyes. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Sing and put your hearts into it. It's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful passage and I found myself thinking how remarkable it is that you um, have been able to renegotiate your relationship with religion and with the Bible. And I, I wanted to ask, because it's remarkable when people who are brought up and, and immersed in a certain belief system who then begin to challenge it and then kind of sit outside of it and then reframe their relationship to it. And I wondered like when that started for you and when did you start to question your relationship to those ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons that it's felt more fun and free and flexible to engage with these texts is, you know, I'm, I'm 37, I haven't been to church in a very long time, I don't, no one can make me go to church anymore. So it's not as if I turned 21 and immediately had this like comfortable, relaxed, easy relationship with the Christianity of my upbringing that I was able to wear it lightly like a spring coat. Um, so certainly, I think for me, 
fairly early on in high school, I shifted from, well, who's to say? Maybe there will be a rapture and I should be ready, but like maybe <laughs> that won't happen, into uh, more on the side of the scale of things of, I don't think this makes a lot of sense as a framework for understanding the world around me. And I think a lot of this actually strikes me as unhelpful. Um, and then I decided to go to Christian college anyways, which, as I said before, I don't recommend. Um, so I, I had to go through, I think, plenty of my own sort of sense of, you know, I, you remember that part in, in, in Dante where people start crossing um, the, the river uh, that Karen is, is uh, rowing his boat over, and there's that sort of question of, like, these shades are falling like leaves at the end of fall to get into hell, and there's that sort of question of why is everyone eager to get into hell, and Dante, like, sort of prefigures psychoanalysis by having that great line of, like, well, now what they fear is what they desire. Um, and so I think kind of working through that relationship with why do I desire the things that I fear? Why have I put myself in the situation I hoped most to avoid? Um, that, of course, brings up a certain amount of like religious resentment. But then I got to go totally nuts in my 20s and work all that out. And now I'm fine. <laughs> and of course, kind of alongside this, and you, and you reference this through the book, is, is your family. And in, um, in one of the early chapters, you write very beautifully about your changing relationship to your mother. And the way you say it is, a person is not a daughter in their own right. They are a daughter to and of someone else. And as much as I knew my gender was my own, that my vocation was assured, that self-determination mattered more to me than external validation, still, if I could have transitioned while remaining her daughter, I would have wanted to do so. And I was really struck by that um, idea. And I, I wanted to ask how it feels now. Is there, what is your relationship like there? Yeah, I think so much of what comes up in this is this question of, um, you know, I, I felt already fairly secure on the question of how do you express your own autonomy? How do you make decisions about your own life? But then also a real sense of like you experience your gender and community with other people, um, which is not to say everyone else should get a vote. Um, but of course it brings up the question of, you know, how will I be received? What does this mean to other people? What does this mean about our relationship? How can I express both a desire to change um, and a real genuine appreciation for ways I've connected with somebody else before? And then certainly also just a sort of general sense of like, um, oftentimes I think people can experience sometimes like maternal skepticism. It's like, I know you a little better than you know yourself. Which is not to say that that was something she was explicitly bringing to my transition. Um, just I think we sometimes have our own maternal skeptic voice in our head. Mm. Um, and so it, this was really challenging. Obviously, um, one of the things that's sort of different about this book is uh, sort of things in my life sort of abruptly changed just as the book was about to come out. So I had really felt like I had been able to work through what in some ways was a complicated but also really loving relationship with my family who, who were both quite religious and also loving and, and supportive. Um, and in, in some ways my sort of biggest fear around transitioning had been the fear that I would lose my family and I felt like I was going to be able to sort of end this book on a not like unqualified triumph uh, of a note but a sort of sense of I've found my way through to that. And then for kind of uh, unrelated and, and um, unforeseeable reasons I did end up losing my relationship with my family and so there were other ways in which um, I, I don't go into the details about that in the book which I think is good I, I wouldn't have been able to do so in any kind of the same way um, but it did kind of make it feel like gosh was that meaningful like did that reconnection happen um, or, or is it all just kind of washed away in light of this this new loss um, and, and so I think a few years out, because this book um, came out a couple of years ago now, um, I, I feel like I'm on the other side of some of that um, and, and have a, a sort of different sense of what it means. You know, even if you become estranged from your family, it's not as if you just decide, I no longer have memories or feelings about any of you. And, and for me, at least, one of the things that was at the forefront at the beginning of my estrangement was a lot of anger, because I felt they had acted really wrongly. Um, and I was so unwilling to let any of that anger down because that also felt like this keeps me psychically tied to these people who have been hugely important to me. Um, and it also puts me in a position of being able to instruct and chide and tell them what I think they ought to have done in this relationship we now have only inside of my head. 
Um, so that's, a, I think, a fairly long way of answering your question or trying to answer it. But um, certainly, even though I don't speak to my mother now and I don't imagine that we will speak again, um, that doesn't mean that having been uh, first her daughter, later something else, later a son, later something else again, uh, isn't something that I, s I think about all the time, because I do. Mm. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any idea whether they've read the book or...? Well, this one, yeah, uh, I think so. You know, it's so difficult to guess. I, I feel, I, you know, I have my own, like, um, you have your own skepticism about your family members, uh, even if you yourself are not their mother. You think, like, I know them better than they know themselves. And so I think, oh, I can really imagine what they've been up to in the years since we stopped talking. But of course I don't. Of course I don't. And if anything, what the estrangement taught me was I knew them less well than I thought I ever had. So it's sort of interesting to find myself going back to that old, easy, assured sense of competency and like, oh, I bet I know. I was just like, you don't know anything about them. Mm. That's the whole idea. Mm. Yeah. You seem to have kind of infinite capacity for empathy. Thank you, I am always saying that. <laughs> and this kind of incredible um, ability to kind of work through being human and like, and how, and how the foibles that we have as well as the, um, the generous aspects. And I guess anyone who, I'm sure there's a lot of Deaf Prudence fans in the audience and um, Big Mood, Little Mood, your podcast, and I just wondered, do you have a sense from doing those things of like what keeps coming up for people? Like what are there patterns you notice perhaps most recently since COVID? Yeah. Well, I will just start by saying it's really easy to be empathetic in writing mm. because it's something that you get to control completely and do all by yourself. <laughs> yeah. So it is just pure reflection and distance. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I will take the compliment and I will run with it. I will wrap it around <laughs> me like a cape. Um, but I think uh, expressing empathy in writing is often easier than elsewhere. Um, but certainly I think one of the things that was useful to me in my time as an advice columnist was both a sense of anything can happen, and so just a general approach that involved like open-mindedness, maybe plausibility, maybe even some gullibility of just like, that might happen. And I think too, like even in the sense of like, sometimes people make up letters. It's like, well, there's a reason you made up that letter. Not to go back and invent psychoanalysis again, but like, there's a reason that you wanted to tell this lie. And I'm curious about what's going on there. Um, I think the people that wrote in to me most often seem to have a few characteristics in common. One of them was, um, a fear of having an avoidable conflict. Um, one of them was a sense that you have to give people what they want if they are technically good people, uh, which often would go along with like, is there a way to break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend without hurting their feelings or ideally letting them know? Like these were, I, I, there are plenty of different problems you can have in the world, but I was not hearing from people who are like too decisive um, or too judgmental. I was hearing from people who were like, I haven't really been happy in this relationship in about six years, but he's never killed anyone. <laughs> and he hasn't like violated the Geneva agreements with me. So I guess I'm not allowed to break up with him. And so that was a really interesting like series of um, priors to try to work through. Um, yeah. Do you ever worry that you've given the wrong advice? Like, do you ever worry about what you're either podcast or writing? I think so. I mean, on the one hand, I always felt really clear that I have no idea who wrote this letter. You know, yeah. it comes filtered through uh, into a big Google document that I look at. Like, I'm not even seeing people's email addresses. I have no way of following up with anyone. I don't even know if they read the column, you know, because you might write in and I might answer a question three weeks or three months later. So there's every possibility that somebody would write in, forget about it, and move on with their life and never even hear my advice. But none of that's to say that I felt like, oh, it's all just like a theoretical idea or a thought experiment, who cares what I say? So I, I certainly, I wanted to be careful, especially if somebody else was you know, sharing details about their life with me and wanted to know what I thought they ought to do. But it was really helpful to just stay grounded in 
I'm not the boss of anyone. I have no way of enforcing this. This is not legally binding. You are totally free to listen to this and think it's the stupidest thing you've ever heard and go do something else. Like I'm not, there's not like, oh no, a power dynamic here of like the guy who does clackety clack on his little laptop somewhere. And so it's like, you should stop talking to your sister. Like <laughs> you don't have to do that. And I don't think I advise that very often. Um, but you can. You can stop talking to your sister and so it's useful <laughs> to think about why might I want to do that and what might I get out of it and how would I carry on with the rest of my life elsewhere. Mm. Um, are there, is there anything that you've never been able to answer or that you haven't wanted to answer? Certainly there would sometimes be questions that felt like they brought up so many like legal issues that it just felt you need to talk to a lawyer. Like you really just need to talk to a lawyer. I can't even publish advice that's like go talk to a lawyer because that feels too exposing. So every once in a while there would just be like a really painful situation that was clearly this calls for levels of expertise that even, even when we just open with like I'm just some person with an opinion, it, it felt like too much. But usually the ones that would feel really thorny, I would try to put in a little box of like, get to this, like think about this for a couple more weeks and then find a way to at least try. And, and again, I think too, that's something that was really useful about uh, like newspaper style advice column writing because you know, you, you turn in the column because it's Tuesday and you need 10 questions. So you don't get really precious or, or too invested in like, oh, I must only dispense like fabulous advice. You do your best, but the column is due when it's due and you keep going. And since you've transitioned, has the nature of um, what people ask you, has that changed? Some, yeah. I mean, I got more questions from people thinking about transitioning just because yeah. like attracts like, you know, homeopathy. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, especially when your problem is like, I have this thing I kind of want to do, but I'm really scared. You want someone who's going to say like, you should do it, but you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Like you want someone who's going to be sort of gently reassuring and is also like, well, I did it and I haven't exploded. So, um, you know, again, like, you know, not a lot of shock there. Uh, but I think one of the things that was really useful about that is it also helped me kind of identify certain patterns that I felt like could sometimes be unnecessarily holding somebody back. So there's like a, a dynamic I sometimes talked about in the column of like, trying to transition like you're opening a candy bar in the movie theater right after the trailers have stopped. <laughs> And you're like, oh, fuck, it just got really quiet in here. And I'm opening a candy bar wrapper. Maybe if I do it super slowly, <laughs> no one will hear. And it never works. It never works. It's just like, you know what a candy bar wrapper sounds like. Um, and it's just as loud, but now it's lasting 10 times longer. And so there's definitely that element of like, maybe if I transition like this, <laughs> no one will notice that I used to be named Sasha. <laughs> and it's like, I really get that fantasy. It makes a lot of sense and it's really appealing. It's never worked. Yeah. It, you can't slowly change your name. I mean, I get it. Like you can ob obviously take your time, think it over, go at your own pace. But like the fundamental idea of doing it so slowly that no one else ever registers, like anything has changed, like the way that like glaciers move over tens of millions of years and then eventually like, oh, there's a river here. Um, that unfortunately we just don't live long enough to do. <laughs> There's, I was listening recently to a podcast with um, the writer Juno Dawson, and she was talking about how she stopped talking about her um, lived experience as a trans person because for her she was starting to feel like it was quite a thankless task, and for her now writing fantasy novels is how she wants to talk about that. And I wondered if you ever run into that feeling of thanklessness? Yeah, I think so. It's certainly something that I've heard um, talked about from, from other people. I, I think it can kind of depend on the type of writing we're, we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Certainly that's sort of like, I'm going to write an op-ed for like a national newspaper that's like, why trans people are a good idea and you should be nice to us is often pretty thankless. And there's a limit to how often you can talk to someone who's like, I think you should be killed on sight. And it's like, I disagree. I think I'm nice. <laughs> um, and I do think that there are ways to get really stuck in that, um, which is not to say that there's never a place for uh, different kinds of like public conversation or debate, just that it is, I think, also 
one of the things that can be really challenging is for lots of trans people, you don't necessarily transition in a community. Sometimes you come to the community after you've transitioned. So a lot of times, sometimes we'll pop up and we'll be like, I've just had this feeling for the first time ever. Or like, I'm the first person to think about this. Or like, I'm the first trans person to do this. And everyone else is like, actually 70 people have done this and they all said the same thing and you're embarrassing yourself a little bit, please don't. And some of that is just like baked in. You can't transition and hope you'll never embarrass yourself. It's like a fundamentally embarrassing thing to want things. Um, uh, and so that's just part of the process. But I think it can be really useful. Um, there's certain things that I think often accompany like your first or second year in that aren't necessarily like, oh, don't ever be naive or don't ever hope for this, but just sort of like, there's some things you only do when you're a freshman. Um, and so different people have different relationships to that kind of um, writing. And obviously, I don't know everything that Juno was talking about in terms of what types of writing she found most thankless. But certainly, I, I think I really felt aware of like, I'm just going to get my early transmission memoir out of the way. I'd, like it's, it's like a sneeze. It's just better to get it over with. And then I can just properly like be sophisticated and embarrassed about it in like 12 years and say like, oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. So we're, um, the, the clock is flashing red, which means we're, it, we're getting into... It did get really it intense. Really intense. Um, so we're coming into question time. So I'm going to ask Daniel one question, and then we'll come to the audience. So I believe there will be microphones in the aisles. So if you make your way to a microphone, we will then go to you. So I wanted to ask you about what you're writing now, and I've had a sneak peek of what that is, but I'm going to let the audience find out. What are you writing now? Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm working on my fifth book, which is my first novel. So hopefully uh, that, that Juno would approve. <laughs> I don't know why now. I'm just like, I hope Juno thinks I'm good. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a novel. Uh, I, it will be coming out, God, who knows, someday in the near future. Um, but it's a, it's a historical novel. It's my Barbara Pym pastiche that I've been threatening to write for so many years. Amazing. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. That's exciting. Do we have any, we might need some lights possibly in the, in the audience um, for question time. And you don't have to. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I've got like, a lot I of I just came questions. here to sit in the audience. I don't have to gin up some questions for this guy. Oh, there we go. There's some lights. It's kind of a nice day out. If you want to just go early, like, let you go. Was that a hand up at the back? No. Okay, cool. I'm just going to keep, if you think of something and you want to ask a question, just jump up to the microphone and, and we'll try and notice. Yeah. Um, I want to know, you, you're so prolific and you write the, the newsletter, Stopgap, um, you're writing a book, like how, what, how do you do it? How, what is your routine for writing? I wish I could express how much TV I watch every day. Like, <laughs> it's, it is, I get so much TV watched. I play so much Civilization VI, which is the greatest video game that anyone has ever invented. You get to make so many cities, and it lasts so long. I just really want to stress, like, I write a bunch of short, snappy little pieces, like Don Marquise writing for the New York Post 110 years ago, and I am done in an hour and a half. It is fun and easy. I'm a lazy person, and I would <laughs> love to do other stuff, so. Okay, um, so write what you love, and it'll be easy and quick. Or, like, prefer, you know, like, I don't write operas, you know, like, I mostly, <laughs> like, I mostly write short, snappy ideas. Um, so find a genre that you can be done with in, like, 30 minutes. Okay. So, so tell us about, oh, we've got some questions here. Yeah. So we'll just go to the, the microphone at the front there. Thank you. And just reminding, just one question would be great. Hi. I'm, <laughs> I'm yet to read the book, but I'm going to soon. It's just it's on the way. But I'm curious, what is your favorite chapter in your book that we've been looking at today? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a really great question. And now I'm going to look at the table of contents because that's going to help me. <laughs> and oh, easy, interlude XBIII. What is that, 18? I don't know Roman yeah. numerals. <laughs> uh, how I intend to comport myself when I have abs someday. Um, one of the things that I often write about and, and I often really like in, enjoy focusing on is that sort of like, oh, I do this, but I don't know that I do this. Like, it's, it's, it's my own, like, you don't know you're beautiful. And so it's this, like, maladaptive fantasy of, like, when I have abs someday, I do not have abs. 
um, people will like talk about it at dinner parties and say like, do you think he even knows that he has abs? Because he never <laughs> talks about them. And like fantasies of like, oh, I'll be reaching for some lentils because I'll be the kind of person who just cooks lentils for my friends when they stop by. And for a moment, my abs will be there and people will say, wow, he has abs. But you would never know it. He never talks about it. Um, and I really enjoy that kind of like maladaptive fantasy. And I, like my, my dream is someday to get abs and then read that chapter so I could add to it. Because again, I don't think that's going to happen. You have to work really hard to get abs. And I just told you how many hours a day I play Civilization VI. But like, <laughs> when I die, I want someone to read it at my funeral and to tell everyone, oh, by the way, he had abs the whole time. He just never told you. You never knew. I hope that answered your question. That's a great question. Thank you. And, and we've got one more question at this microphone. Thanks, Danny. Um, huge fangirl of Prudy, read every single column you ever wrote. And I feel like, as someone who's a good bit older than you, I gained so much wisdom from reading your stuff. And I'm curious to know if you feel like there are things you figured out about yourself or life from doing the column. Like, what did you, what did your readers and the people who wrote in teach you? What did you teach yourself in mm -hmm. the process of writing Dear Prudy? Thank you so much. That was so kind. Um, I, I do think one of the things that I noticed a great deal in these questions that I really shared was it is so easy to go from a position where you are 100% right to where you are only 50% right, um, especially if you have been bottling something up. And that the worst thing in the world is that you've just said something you have to apologize for to someone you're mad at already. Like, I don't know if you've ever had to apologize to someone who's more wrong than you, but you just did something wrong because you spent like 12 years not talking to them about something until you exploded at a wedding. And now you just, you demonstrably have done something wrong. And I just, I realized how often that would happen. And I also was like, oh, if you had said something eight years sooner when you were just sort of upset, you could have kept your composure and you wouldn't have called someone like, uh, you know, just the worst thing you can imagine at their own wedding. Um, and so just kind of a real sense of this idea of like endlessly deferring conflict doesn't work. So there's got to be something else that works better. Um, and anything that can be done to avoid apologizing to someone who you know is going to get such a kick out of it. And they're never going to apologize for the thing they were doing wrong. And now you've lost all the moral high ground you could have used to get them to apologize. And you have to start over by being a martyr for the next six years so you can finally get back on the moral high ground and say, and you never thank me for this. So uh, that's something that I thought about a lot. <laughs> Great, and one question down here. Hi. Um, oh, it's loud. Um, I guess I have kind of a question around uh, when you're writing and coming up against maybe any internalized transphobia. Um, I've always I've been drawn to your writing for a long time because of your uh, ability to like make fun of yourself while also like having a lot of self-compassion, and I. I am curious if you have strategies for protecting yourself and your readers from maybe the worst effects of like that internalized transphobia that some of us experience. I don't know if um, that ever crosses your mind, but yeah, if you could speak to that, I'd love to hear. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, I don't always have a really strong sense of what the difference is between internalized something versus the thing itself. I know sometimes I hear people talking about internalized transphobia versus transphobia, um, and I, I'm sure that they know what they mean. I just, I've never been able to come up with a meaningful distinction. So I think one of the things that's just been really useful uh, for me to remember is that it, it is not at all uncommon for someone to deal with self-loathing or self-criticism, that that is something that a lot of people share. Um, that it can often be fairly relentless, um, and that the goal is not necessarily to get rid of that voice entirely, so much as to make sure that you're getting a healthy amount of air and sunlight on it, and that's not becoming the sort of like narrative voice that you think dictates truth for everyone. Um, and so I think trying to approach self-loathing with curiosity, because the one thing I know does not approach is, fuck, I need to feel better about myself right now. Um, that's never worked. And so trying to, and instead of like, I need to get rid of this and only think good, pure thoughts about myself that are like super affirmative, like I have eight children's stories written about me that's like, I'm special today. Um, which again, specialness is good and should be encouraged. I don't mean to demean specialness. Um, but 
I, I tend to think like what would be useful rather than what would make me feel better. Um, and then I, I think just to sometimes be reminded that like, well, self-loathing uh, and shame frankly often work to keep people stuck. Um, and so it's just often uh, not a very productive way of uh, trying to spin a wheel. Um, so I think that's maybe my best answer to that question. Yeah, I think other than that, really specifically to your question about transphobia, it's just like, I know where that came from. That's not a surprise. There's the transphobia everywhere. That's okay. I can put that aside for the moment. That's not going anywhere. I'm not worried we're going to run out of transphobia supplies. So I don't have to worry overly uh, about like, oh, I better really listen to this voice. And it's just like, that voice is going to be heard loud and clear, like a clarion bell ringing out over a beautiful bay for a million billion years. I can listen to something else. Thank you. I have one final very quick question for you. You have 18 seconds, you gotta go. No, I'm gonna speed. If you were to be stranded in your Sky City hotel room, what one book would you want to have with you? Well, first, I've forgotten every book that I've ever read and ever heard of, <laughs> so I just wanna start with that. Um, I think that I would like to be left with um, Robert Benchley. Wow. Specifically, uh, whatever collection includes What No Budapest, which included the, fun the first line in a book that ever made me laugh out loud. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Can we give Daniel a huge round of applause? Yeah. Thank you. Um, you can go and buy this really spectacular book just outside. Daniel will be there to sign your copy. Uh, you can see Daniel tonight at Britomat, Text with Jane Eyre. That's what we're going to do. And you can also see Daniel in another session on Sunday at 2.30 p.m., the Dear Prudence session with Tom Sainsbury. Um, they will be giving advice live on stage, and you can write your dilemma to prudence at writersfestival.co.nz. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Thank you all for coming.